Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Lincoln Project co-founder and co-host of LPTV's The Breakdown, Rick Wilson. Rick, good to have you here. Hey, Reed. And also joining us is Lincoln Project senior advisor and longtime political strategist, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for coming. Reed, great to be here, man. Today we're going to talk a little bit about President Biden's speech commemorating the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 lockdown and Donald Trump's further undercutting of the Republican Party and its fundraising efforts. But first, I want to take a moment and acknowledge that one year ago, all of our worlds changed with the start of the COVID pandemic. And just wanted to get, you know, a little reflection from you guys of where you were, how you felt, and, you know, what you were seeing. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just to start, you know, my wife is much smarter than me, not surprisingly, but she'd been to Costco like the week before. And, you know, bought however much stuff she could and stuffed it down into the little crawl space area we had, you know, dried goods, canned goods, bottles of water, mac and cheese for days, everything, because, you know, we just didn't know what it was going to be, you know, but then suddenly the kids were home, but no school was prepared for distance learning, you know, in those first few days. Nobody left their house. If you did, it was one of those things where, you know, you wore gloves, you wore a mask, you wore a hat, you covered up every last piece of sort of visible skin. And then when you got home, you took it all off, washed it all immediately, rubbed down your groceries with any bacterial wipes and everything else. It was such a surreal time. And the only thing I can really think of is watching the Tiger King and sleeping in a little bit. Now, obviously, Rick, you and I had just met a couple of weeks before in New York City uh, at the Cooper Union for the first time. That's the first time you and I ever met in person. Yep, for sure. And then basically the world shut down. So it was not just that one day, but it was that six weeks, at least for us, from mid-March until the end of April where, I mean, I know that my kids who are eight and 10 will remember it forever and they'll certainly remember the pandemic, but it was such a strange time. Stuart, where were you when everything sort of went to hell? Um, it's actually sort of a funny story. I was on this trip with a small group skiing across the top of Finland. We're skiing from the Russian border to the Swedish border, and a thing called border to border. And there were these three guys on the trip who were Danish, who all looked like Vikings, these giant guys with these huge, unruly beards. And being modern Vikings, they all three were PhDs and MDs. Naturally. <laughs> Naturally. And when this was going down, we'd ski all day and then, like, you know, listen to radio, watch, inter- get on the net a little bit at night. And they had all been in Africa for Ebola. And they were, this is going to be bad. And the Danes at that point were calling people back to Denmark, sort of like an all points bulletin. If you're a medical person, come back. And one of them's dad was a retired doctor and he was being retrained to come back. And you could just see them preparing for this. They said, What are you going to do when this is finished? And I said, Well, I'm going to go back to America. And one of them said, 
you really want to do that? <laughs> Which I thought was hard to be very, uh, very prescient. And then when I came back, Trump had shut off Europe. So I had to fly from Stockholm to London and then London to the U.S. And he had blocked, you know, these direct flights from China. But about half the plane was full of Chinese who, you know, figured that all they had to do was fly to London, then they could fly to America. And I landed, it was one of the first days of their test when they were screening people. And my experience was very positive. I flew into BWI and they were super efficient. I was in and out of there in like 10 minutes. But it was this strange sense that the world was changing. That's one thing. I mean, you know, as someone probably like y'all who had flown darn near every week for years, as far as I could remember, the idea that I went from the end of February in 2020, and I don't think I got on a plane again until November. It was just one of those things. And so, Rick, you know, the last time I'd seen any human beings until everybody came out here to Park City was, you know, that time at Cooper Union in New York. But, you know, you would have gotten home back down to Tallahassee. Now, maybe Florida never changed because, of course, it is Florida. But what was your experience like in that time? Well, I was actually on part of my book tour and I was out in L.A. that week and I was doing some book tour stuff and I was doing some Hollywood entertainment stuff. And I remember the night before I had gone to a screening of the Comey rough cut for the Comey movie. And this was two nights before the shutdown. And everybody started talking about this COVID thing. And then the next day I had a meeting with a friend of ours out there for LP related stuff. And she was very nervous. And I said, I'm not really following this all that closely, but you know, it seems pretty concerning. She's like, well, we're cutting off production. And I said, what? Yeah. She's like, we think it's going to be really bad. So I called my agent. I said, I think I should probably cut this off. And at that point, like additional stops on the book tour started to cancel because of COVID. I go to LAX and I'm on the phone with people trying to figure out what's going on. And flights are canceling, canceling, canceling. And everything's up in the air. And I call Hertz and I reserve a minivan because it's the only damn car I can find. And you drive I-10 for 3,000 straight miles? No, no, no. I ended up getting a flight. <laughs> I ended up dumping the res. But you know the circular... All the terminals are that circular in LAX, mm -hmm, like a sure. wheel pattern. It might be the worst airport. I mean, it's worse than LaGuardia, and that's a lot. It makes the St. Louis airport look like a showpiece. Right, right. <laughs> but all of a sudden, all the screens start going black. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Is the apocalypse beginning? What? So they, they everything starts going black, and they, they boot up a few minutes later, and there's a million delays. And like you said, Reed, we're all people who traveled constantly. And we're all at whatever elite status, blah, blah, blah. But I remember going to a counter. I'm like, listen, put me anywhere on this plane. Get me out of here. I'll sit in the middle seat. I'll sit in the back of the plane. I just want to go. Somebody else canceled. got a flight back to Florida and did not get on another airplane until Park City. And then got on an airplane, flew home from Park City in November. And then I went to DC 10 days ago for some meetings, but that's it. And so that transitional moment where it started to impact everyone's life probably is a little different for everybody. Some people may have felt it sooner. Some people felt it, I think, much later. I think a lot of people during that phase where it was spreading quickly across the country, a lot of people were being told, hey, it's no big deal. It's the flu. It's nothing to worry about. It's only a few cases. Trump has it under control. And in some ways, it changed how we were going to run the Lincoln Project. It turned us into this very virtual organization where we spent 99% of our meetings were over Zoom and interactions were over the phone or Zoom. Yeah. I mean, I think about that just so to, to turn it to politics a little bit. I think if you remember, you know, about two weeks into the shutdown, 
that first shutdown in early April, remember that the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, is saying we should sacrifice the old people in the name of the economy. Remember that? Good guy. I think it was really the beginning of the illustration that whatever humanism, you know, long term humanism going back from the Enlightenment to the present day and any conservative movement had been thoroughly flushed out of it. So now this week, President Joe Biden, thankfully, gave a speech from the White House sort of commemorating the one year anniversary of the shutdown and what it meant and what we've lost. Rob, can we pull that first clip from the president's speech? Look, we know what we need to do to beat this virus. Tell the truth. Follow the scientists and the science. Work together. Put trust and faith in our government to fulfill its most important function, which is protecting the American people. No function more important. We need to remember the government isn't some foreign force in a distant capital. No, it's us, all of us. We, the people. Isn't it weird to have a president who talks like a president? Yeah, that was the thing is I was listening to the speech because I was in my car. It was refreshingly normal. You know, the one thing that Biden's always been good at, and I think sometimes he's been teased for, is that he is Uncle Joe, right? He is a regular guy to the extent that any president of the United States or long-term senator can be a regular guy. But he certainly brought, I think, that level of humanity, empathy, sympathy to a country that is still really going to have to reckon with so much of this across every sort of border of our lives. And Stu, what did you think if, you know, as you were listening or watching? I was really glad that we've been involved in the Lincoln Project because you think about Donald Trump, he lost and almost brought down the government. And you think about how many hundreds of thousands of people would have died needlessly had he been reelected. I don't think we've come to grips with the totality of the responsibility of not just Trump, but of those in the White House, the Kellyanne Conways, the Stephen Millers. They are people who are out there saying that the virus had been contained. They knew it was a lie. They were lying because they thought it would curry favor with their boss. And they have blood on their hands. If we had the same death rate as Germany, our number of people who had died dramatically lowered. This didn't have to happen. And I got vaccinated on Tuesday here in Vermont, and it was extraordinarily efficient. And I just thought, like, why couldn't this have been from the beginning? There's nothing about the United States that means that we had to have this extraordinary death toll. But COVID was the perfect stress test of so much of what had become wrong with the Republican Party, the anti-science, the anti-elite, the anti-trusting of government to have any function, the culture of mendacity, where truth is the exception and truth is challenged as alternative facts. All of that came together and slaughtered people. And I think it's going to be looked back on the same way we look at how the Black Death was treated. Like, how is it that this happened? You know, we go back to essentially some of the earliest moments of the Trump administration, set aside the campaign. One of those things that I think set the tone and the moment for the entire Trump campaign was when Kellyanne Conway walked out there and said, there are alternative facts. And it was accepted not only by a large part of the country politically, but unfortunately, it was also accepted by a large part of the media who wanted to preserve their access to the people that were going to give them those alternative facts. And I think her moment there it's almost one of the origin stories of why the COVID crisis, as it played out, was something where the White House not only believed they could, but actually did 
get away with lying to the country for several months about the severity of this disease, about its potential import. And I really think it's important to go back to that moment in some ways. Well, I mean, think about last September when um, Bob Woodward was putting out his latest tell-all White House book. He released some of the recordings he'd made when he was on the phone with then-President Trump. One of the most chilling things for me as Woodward released those tapes, because I believe his conversation with Trump was in February of 2020, was that Trump had absolutely intellectualized how dangerous the thing was. Yes. In fact, when you hear that recording, he's actually very lucid. He knows what's going on. In that moment, he understands it, but then probably days, maybe hours later, he makes a decision. Sometimes we give Trump a pass by calling him stupid. He's not stupid, but he's not strategic. He's manipulative, and he's always out to save his own skin. And I think, you know, Stuart, to your point, whether or not it was the Kushners, you know, let the New Yorkers die. You know, it was also this sort of incompetence that ran roughshod through any crime family or nepotistic organization, but also this sort of banality of evil. They sat in the Roosevelt room. They sat in the cabinet room. They ate donuts and they drank coffee and they talked about these things as if like these people weren't actually dying, as if this thing wasn't crisscrossing the country as fast as it possibly could. Because they were ensconced safely in the White House and, you know, they'd be locked down there for the foreseeable future. And so I do think that as we've seen this now, even going through today, you know, I use Texas as an example now, with, you know, a few weeks back when the power went out with, a, you know, this big storm, is that what we've seen from the Republican Party, as you noted, Stuart, is not just a disbelief in government, but now the corresponding lack of competence that comes with it or willingness to take responsibility for it. And as we see now, Elections do have consequences. And in the case of 2016, the consequences were not only the destruction of so many foundational pieces of the country and our institutions, but ultimately half a million dead Americans. I think what we have trouble grasping is the fact that these people are actually evil. This is always an advantage that those who oppose democracy have, that they understand what they are doing and they play off the good faith of their opponents. And we even have a language to deal with that. We say that people will come to their senses. Trumpism is very much, they have come to their senses. And their sense is the United States should not be a democracy. It should be an autocracy, deeply ruled by racist overtones. That's their vision. And they're just beginning. Look at the voter suppression laws. Their attempt is to slide America out of democracy into something that is closer to Russia. and. I think the outcome of this is uncertain, and we're foolish to believe that it's over now that Joe Biden is president. They will impeach Joe Biden if they take back the House, take back the Senate. They will impeach him. I'd venture to say I think they'd impeach Harris. Biden probably has too much goodwill among a lot of Republicans, and I think that Kamala Harris would suit their needs, unfortunately, a lot better and steward for a lot of the reasons you just alluded to. But Rick, let me go back to this idea of normalcy. I saw this report, might have been in Axios or something, that in the first month of Donald Trump's presidency in 2017, there were something like 5,400 media stories on him. In January of 2021, there were about 1,700 stories about Joe Biden. And Biden, you see, you know, he does the traditional, you know, he'll do a pool spray, which is where they let the cameras into, you know, he's having a meeting, everyone's wearing a mask. You know, Jen Psaki very ably spars with the press every day, gives honest answers. If she can't give an answer, she says, I'll get back to you. And so I'm curious as to what you think, because you mentioned the media earlier, is 
you know, there's that dopamine rush, I think, that all of us suffered from. And I think it was suffering from it that came with the chaos of a Trump administration. But when that goes away, you know, there's a hole to fill. And so if you were sitting, you know, as a member of the White House press corps in the briefing room and you were listening to Spicer or Huckabee or Kaylee McEnany and you knew they were lying and they knew they were lying, but that was going to give you minutes, hours, days worth of stuff, just incredulity. Now you got to go. Someone who expects you to ask a real question is going to give you a real answer. And when you ask a ridiculous question, the look on her face is just it's just genius. It's gold. Right. Because she does it. It's very subtle, but it's there. How are they going to contend with this? Because they can't quit Trump, right? They can't quit the freak show. They can't. I was talking to a Republican pollster today who called me out of the blue. I talked to him for like a year. He said, you know, you guys are taking all this shit from the right wing media. It's really not about you. They're looking for anything to keep a Trump storyline rolling in their feeds. They're looking for anything to keep Donald Trump as the centerpiece of their dialogue. And so you guys have become the only kind of clickbait they've got right now because Biden's popularity is higher than Trump's was ever right now. And it may not stay there, but it's very high. The approval on things like the COVID relief bill are very high. And all these things that have sort of changed the media landscape, there is a craving. They are jonesing for some sweet, sweet Trump. And they loved it because look, you know what doesn't sell advertising clicks? Policy. And Joe Biden's running an administration right now that's doing policy. They're trying to do things like get a vaccine distributed. They're trying to do things like get economic relief out to people. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, did you hear that crazy fucking thing Joe Biden just said? Oh, my God. Nobody says that. And that's a blessing to this country, but it's a huge problem for our media enterprise in this world. So let me just ask this, Stuart. So, you know, this week, Tucker Carlson has been in the middle of a couple of, I'm going to put controversies in air quotes. Well, one one is an, an air quote controversy. The other one was him just being a dick, <laughs> which was the first one was about, you know, this New York Times reporter, Taylor Lorenz, who had gone to this clubhouse app, you know, claimed that Mark Andreessen, longtime venture capital guy, right, very well known, had used a slur against cognitively disabled people, the R word. Um, turns out it wasn't true. And so, you know, the likes of Tucker Carlson and the esteemed Glenn Greenwald, who has plenty of his own issues, are jumping all over this. But then the same week, he was finishing up his rap on the Dr. Seuss controversy, again, in air quotes. And then, you know, he goes after women in the American military and says that we're losing to China because they're masculine and we're feminine, which obviously has the appropriate effect of pissing off every right-thinking normal American who believes that if you serve in the military in uniform, if you're willing to put your life on the line, really doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you deserve equal respect. But it goes to like the sort of outrage culture in which we're living, right? Which is now that Trump's gone, there's got to be something that sort of keeps people pissed off. And that's not particularly healthy either. No, I mean, Tucker Carlson's a fascinating example because, you know, I've never really known him closely, but I've watched him, I've engaged with him going back well, it would be a true statement to say going back to last century. And, you know, there was a time when he was sort of wanted to be a serious human being. He wanted to be a real writer, but he couldn't make it. He's not a good writer. He doesn't have the patience. He's too ego driven to report because he always sort of had to be about him. So he just made this decision that he would be a professional buffoon. And look, there's always been a market for hate in this country. There is a hate machine. The great tragedy of the Trump era 
which we're still in very much, is that the Republican Party embraced this hate machine. It became the official voice and tone of the Republican Party. So people talk about Tucker Carlson running for president. I don't think it's an absurd idea at all. He's a more intelligent, better educated person who would say and do anything. It's dangerous. These are dangerous people. It goes back to Rupert Murdoch being the most dangerous immigrant in America. And it should not be taken lightly. And part of the problem is, what is the solution? And I'm sort of a First Amendment absolutist. I don't think that we should have laws like they have in England. I think we're better off in the long run for not having them. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. There's painful consequences. But it is a huge problem that is compounded by technology, where people consume information now to confirm their opinions, not to inform their opinions. And we're all guilty of that. You have to make a conscious effort not to. And it empowers someone like Tucker Carlson, who basically is that sort of kid in the back of the class who makes fart sounds. <laughs> and that's what he does for a living. And, you know, you look back and he's like grinning and yeah, because that's the only way that like any of the girls will even look at him. It is very troubling and it's not going to go away anytime soon. That's part of the reason I think what we're trying to do in the Lincoln Project with streaming television and this podcast is so important. You have to get into an information stream beyond just running advertisements around elections. Well, so I think the other piece of the Tucker puzzle is something that you noted, Stuart, which is, Rick, there was a time I think we've talked about before when like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or a Matt Gates would have been told to like sit in the cloakroom and we'll tell you when it's time to vote. Now they're trotted out there because they drive the outrage machine, because they drive the cash register. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene stands up three times a day and, you know, calls for a roll call vote to adjourn the U.S. House. It's not about governance. It's about the performance. And, and I think that's a dangerous piece in and of itself because voters, especially Republican voters, they're now being conditioned, I think, Rick, to not look for someone who has their best interests at heart, but someone who's going to drive that adrenal pump as far and as hard as they can, as often as they can. And this goes back to, you know, the most dangerous immigrant in the world, you know, Rupert Murdoch owns a system, a network that every day pokes the amygdala of these Republicans. Every day that network tells them, be afraid of liberals, be afraid of Mexicans, be afraid of the elite, be afraid of educated people. Your fear is not only justified, but justifies any behavior. And this is why the Lincoln Project's mission is, I think, something of continued importance. Because Trump was sui generis, he was a unique and uniquely terrible figure in our politics, but there will be people who come after Trump. There will be people who have the veneer of credentials, the veneer of expertise, the veneer of civility, but who share a similar commitment to a fundamentally dangerous and authoritarian ideology. And they will be fed by an audience that is told, only X can save you from destruction by the liberals. Only X will prevent your church from being burned to the ground by Antifa. Only X will prevent those BLM people, you know what they look like, from coming to your neighborhood. And in all these cases that are arising, the Josh Hawley's of the world, the Ron DeSantis's of the world, they scan to some people in the press as a more serious kind of person than does a Matt Gates or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so they will do the both sidesism and say, oh, there's extremes on both sides. But, you know, Josh Hawley may be Trumpish, but he's still a normal person. And we will find ourselves one day waking up in a world where a person like a Josh Hawley, who has demonstrated on the floor of the Senate 
while armed and angry mobs are descending on the building that he was willing in order to subvert an American election to ride along with that. So no matter how civilized he wants to pretend to be in the future, and no matter how much of a guy he wants to play the, I was educated in an Ivy and I've done this and that card he wants to play in the future, we know who he is and we know who a lot of these people are, but there is an ecosystem that feeds them and funds them. And again, that's why I go back to why our mission is important because Trump is off the stage for the moment, but these other people are waiting in the wings. They are more dangerous than Trump. They have a better intellectual capacity for strategic thought than Trump. And they have a darker outlook in many ways because Trump wrote along with nationalist populism because he was kind of that guy genetically. These people have it because it's a considered ideological set of beliefs. So let's turn to that because I think it was this week, Donald Trump sent cease and desist letters to the Republican (laughs) National Committee, National Republican Congressional Committee, and the National Republican (laughs) Senatorial Committee telling them to stop using his name and likeness in their fundraising that, you know, they did not have permission to do this. He then sends out a statement that says, all these people are a bunch of rhinos. Give only to my super PAC at this website. And then the Republican Party or the Republican establishment basically does, you know, the Greg Marmalard or the Kevin Bacon and says, you know, thank you, sir. May I have another? And it's announced that Senator Rick Scott of Florida, chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, is going to bend the knee at Mar-a-Lago. And I told Rob this before we started, which is if Donald Trump sat in a golden throne and told Rick Scott to kneel before him and tell him two plus two equals five. As Stewart said, he would say, is that all I have to do? And so, Stewart, like, is it an abusive relationship? I mean, where, where do we go from here? I mean, I guess it's to me, it's sort of classic Trump, right, which is like, I own you. Don't do what it is I say you can't do. And then I'm going to smack you for it. And you're going to say thank you. What is going on with these people? I think Trump has this animal instinct for weakness. And as Rick and I have written about, the Republican Party turned out to believe in nothing. When you believe in nothing but power, anyone who will promise you power becomes someone who you accept. There's no line you won't cross. So there is no Republican Party. There really is a Trump party, at least on the national level. There's some governors out there. There's still Republicans and doing superb jobs. This is going to continue. What is really difficult to grasp, I think, is that we are just at the beginning of this. We are entering a very different era in our politics, an era in which one of the major parties doesn't believe in democracy, in which the Republican Party no longer exists as we knew it all the years that we worked in the party. It exists as an organ of Trumpism. And in life, you believe in what you're willing to fight for. And what the Republican Party, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, proved that they don't believe in anything because they won't fight. Going back to 2015, when Trump first announced, he had very low favorables among Republicans. And the party could have stopped Trump. The party was afraid of Trump. The party was afraid, remember, that Trump was going to run as an independent. He manipulated them. He bullied them. He beat them. He humiliated them. And once that has happened, you can't go back. There is no regaining honor when you have submitted to Donald Trump. You just have to exit the stage. And I think that's why you see so many Republicans retiring. So, Rick, one of the things, too, that we, you know, we've talked about, we've talked a little bit about the media today, is that there are plenty of people out there, too, who used to be conservatives, used to be Republicans, whatever they're going to be called now, who have already 
over the last five years and will continue to provide not only a defense of whatever it is Trump and Republicans say, but also begin to formulate an intellectual underpinning of those beliefs. For sure. Now, that won't make them true and it won't make it you know, necessarily valid for a lot of people. But what it will do is say, look, it's not that bad. I think you've called it the car wash of Trumpism, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, you know, he's not really that bad. And so and I think that I think that Hawley and well, Cruz in a car wash have never met, but but a Hawley or a Cotton, right, probably are very much in the car wash line that, you know, they understand that there is a lot of Trumpism that Americans want nothing to do with. But there's just enough in there, as we saw at CPAC, that's believable to enough people, as you talked about in the, the sort of fear realm. That, you know, they could build up a base of support, which they already have in many cases, that could be very difficult to beat in 2022 or 2024. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that the person I was talking to this morning mentioned to me, they said, you know, your your old friend Michael Anton, who was one of the intellectual architects in the Trump White House, who worked with Miller very closely, who wrote the famous Flight 93 article during the 2016 campaign, and who ironically at one point worked for me back in 2000. The guy is now visiting with people like Hawley and visiting with people like Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz, talking to them and telling them there's a way to turn Trumpist nationalism and authoritarianism into something with more of an intellectual framework. And this is one of those proofs that philosophical systems are not agnostic. Philosophical systems are not all equal. You can decorate Trumpism and nationalist populism all you want. It's still nationalist populism. But these guys are going to try that. They're going to try to set up what look like institutional systems. They're going to say, oh, well, a think tank, the great American future think tank, put out a report and it's going to look normal. It's going to look like something from Brookings or Heritage. And people will write about it. Reporters will mention it. And they'll say, well, the American populism report says, and they'll make assertions from a position of conviction that will look and sound normal-ish to people who live in the Washington media bubble. And they will gain credibility with that. And they will rise in persuasive power with that. And they will slide the old Overton window a little wider, a little wider, a little wider, until the point where we're going to have people in America who say, well, of course, you can call it fascism, but it's just what we like to call nationalist populism. They're going to try that. And there's a good chance that because of the media ecosystem and the political ecosystem of Washington, that they will slide that into America's brain, not in a year or two, but in a few months. They're working us very hard. They recognize something that we in the center didn't for a long time, that if they win one big election, that's it. They don't have to win every single election. They only have to win one big knockout. And you put a Josh Hawley with a Mitch McConnell as majority leader and a Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and there won't have any of the fuckery of Donald Trump being crazy and wondering about snack foods every day or Twitter. They will have somebody with an ideological agenda who will alter this country swiftly and fundamentally, and in my opinion, for the worse. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, Rick, you've mentioned a couple of times in the last few shows about the Washington media bubble, the inside the beltway stuff. And I think, you know, they provide, unfortunately, an equity between the two sides because there's only two sides. So whatever one side says, right, is valid. And then there's the other side. And because there's only two sides, the other side gets some sort of backstop of validity or credibility that is probably certainly a not deserved and b not accurate but that's another episode so before we go rick here we are we're a year into covid what are you looking forward to here in the next few days or weeks well there's a rumor i might be able to get vaccinated this weekend and i'm super excited about that 
but I think in the next few weeks, we're going to start seeing, I think, the early impacts of the COVID relief bill playing out. I don't mean the political impacts. I mean the economic and personal impacts because there are still people in this country by the many, many, many millions who have been hurt by this and who are hurting. And so I think it's important we keep an eye on that. I also think it's important we keep an eye on you know, the fact that the 2022 races are already warming up, folks, and very consequential for the approaches we end up taking in 22 and beyond. And uh, politically, I'm starting to keep my eye really closely on the Virginia governor's race, which is going to be a very interesting test of Trumpism. And Stuart, how about you? What are you looking at? I think it's going to be really fascinating as we begin to enter the next stage of a post-COVID world. There will never be the world the same. How are Americans going to respond? And the hopeful take would be it truly is going to help unite Americans and help restore some faith in government, which is an essential part of our lives, like it or not. I was really struck by this getting vaccinated the other day, that it was a communal experience. You did what Americans aren't very good at. You lined up orderly. It was a large open space. There are a lot of people there, many volunteers, doing something together to help each other. And I was talking to a friend of mine who has been volunteering, administering vaccines. And he said, for many people, it's very emotional. He says, it is not uncommon when he does this. People just like break down and sort of sob. And that's an extraordinarily intense experience for Americans to share. And it will be fascinating to see if we come out of this feeling more together. And I know that when you talk to people and like, I got my second shot, it's like they graduated from high school or got married, right? There's like this celebration. Uh, <laughs> there's like, oh, that's terrific. Oh, congratulations. It's great news. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. It feels a little foreign, to be honest with you, Stuart. It's joyous, right? Um, and I don't think we should, as, as Biden said, I don't think we should underestimate the frankly miraculous medical nature of the fact that these companies, these scientists, these doctors came up with three, you know, and maybe more efficacious vaccines in less than a year. I mean, it's truly astonishing that I'm, I'm sure that these folks will probably never get nearly enough credit for, but they certainly should. And so, look, I think that from my perspective, that's also right, which is having school age kids as we start to come through this. What does that look like for them right now? They're basically stuck with their classmates all day, every day in masks. Uh, they have to have lunch in their classrooms. They can only, you know, hang out with the kids, you know, at recess that they see all day, every day and starting to see hopefully that, you know, they'll get vaccinated whenever they can come up with a safe one. But, yeah, the sort of America reopening, not in the Texas or Florida method, but in a way that is responsible. And I think that, you know, going back to, you know, many, many years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville always said that the thing that impressed him most was the fact that there was so little structure around Americans, except for the fact that they always seem to find a way to build communities to get things done. And I hope, if anything, that's certainly something that we can look forward to in the coming days, weeks and months as not only, you know, we at the Lincoln Project continue to push back on Trump and Trumpism and the ugliness that they want to infect us with further, but also start to build up further the foundations of American democracy, a reformation and a restoration of American democracy as you go forward, because it's only one thing to beat the bad guys, right? You've got to have enough good guys who are there to fill the vacuum. So with that, Rick, where can we find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on Twitter. All right. And Stuart, how about you? Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. And you can find me at Reed Galen on Twitter. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.